Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. My name is Luke. I get to serve as one of the ministers here, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today. If you've got your Bibles with you, Mark chapter 11. And I want to let you know right up front that this morning I am heavily indebted to two dear friends of mine. Uh, One is Dr. Mark Moore, who is a longtime professor at Ozark Christian College, my alma mater. And the other is Mr. Dan Hamill, who's the preacher down at our sister church, The Creek, on the southeast side, both of whom are very influential men in my life. And uh, they have helped me deeply to understand our text for the day, and I'm just excited to share with you this morning some of what I have learned from them. And as we jump into Mark chapter 11, I want to ask you a question, simple question. Was Jesus political? Was Jesus political? Now, politics at its core is the creation of a community. It's structuring the way that a group of people live and how they're supposed to interact together. And so to be then a political figure means you have to meet four specific criteria. Number one, political figures are public, not private. They live public lives. Number two, political figures have power. Number three, political figures have followers. And number four, political figures have an agenda. So let me ask you the question again. In light of that, was Jesus political? Yeah, you bet he was, right? Did he live a public life? Did he wield authority? Did he have followers? Does Jesus have an agenda? Absolutely he does. Now, in the back of your mind, you might be saying, well, you know, Jesus... He didn't actually hold an official office and an established kind of power structure, which is true, but neither did Martin Luther King Jr., neither did Mahatma Gandhi, and we would both say those are political figures. There's a difference in being political and being a politician. Jesus was not a politician, and all God's people said... That's right. Okay, so if we have established the fact that Jesus was political, then my question for you this morning is this. If Jesus is political, how should we be political? Now, some of you just got a little bit nervous, didn't you? You're squirming in your seats. Give me a chance, okay? I promise you this morning that we're not going to talk about voting, elections, or candidates, all right? I promise this has never been a church for the donkey or the elephant. We will always be a church for the lion and the lamb, right? Now, In light of that, if Jesus is political, how should we be political? Um, If you'll bear with me here this morning, I'd like to do a little bit of teaching through this text, and after I do some teaching, then I'll do some preaching. Does that sound okay? All right, let's start with the teaching part. Let's jump right in here to Mark chapter 11. Before we can answer this question, if Jesus is political, how should we be political? We're gonna look together at the most politically charged event of Jesus's life. Now, make no mistake, there were a whole lot of events in Jesus's life that had political overtones. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, which was rich with symbolism. That was symbolizing the fact that he wanted to lead his people through a new exodus into a new kind of promise promised land and deliberate them. That was political. Jesus chose 12 disciples. That was no accident. That symbolized that he wanted to restore the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus sent 70 of his followers out to do kingdom work. That was not an accident. That was mirroring the 71 members of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. Jesus explicitly compared himself to Moses, which was the first leader of the nation of Israel. Jesus explicitly compared himself to David, who was Israel's greatest king. 
Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. That was an event that was so political that do you remember what the people tried to do right after that? They tried to make him king because they thought he was raising an army. Jesus had a lot of politically charged events in his life, but there was no event more overtly political than the triumphal entry. The moment when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and the last week of his life begins. And we'll pick it up right here in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. So this is the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry. This is the event that everything we've been reading so far has been leading up to. And if this is the pinnacle event of Jesus' ministry, why in the world is he on a donkey? Like, shouldn't Jesus be riding in a war chariot or something like that? Shouldn't he be seated on a white horse that is well-groomed? Why a donkey's colt? Well, actually, this is an ancient historical custom here in Israel that when a new king was being crowned, they would be led into the city on a donkey's colt. Jesus doesn't just sit on a donkey because he likes donkeys. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here, and all the people who saw Jesus knew what he was doing too. Jesus came into Jerusalem claiming to be the king, and not just any old king. He's claiming to be the promised king, the Messiah, the deliverer. All the people seeing Jesus come into Jerusalem that week, they knew their Bibles. They knew their Old Testaments way better than we know our Old Testament. But this afternoon, if you go back and you flip back in your Old Testament to the prophet Zechariah, then you'll know what the Jews knew that day. Because if you read the prophet Zechariah, he prophesies about what Jesus does in this last week of his life. Zechariah prophesies about how Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. About how Jesus would be pierced at his death, about how Jesus' followers would scatter when he dies. Zechariah foretells even that when the Messiah comes, he will come down and enter the city from the Mount of Olives, which overlooks Jerusalem. That's exactly where Jesus came from. And the prophet Zechariah tells us exactly how he will come. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly, And riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew this text, and everybody watching him knew it too. When Jesus comes riding down on a donkey's colt from the Mount of Olives, they know what he is claiming. He may not be shouting out, hey, everybody, I'm the new king, but sometimes actions speak louder than words, don't they? If you saw somebody walk up onto the steps of the United States Capitol building and place their right hand on a Bible and recite the presidential oath of office, they don't have to tell you that they're claiming to be the president. You would know exactly what they were claiming at that moment, wouldn't you? We are familiar with the symbolism. The Jews would have been also. And so how do they respond? Mark tells us what they do. It says, many people spread their cloaks on the road 
while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Now, what in the world is going on here? People are putting down their coats on the road. They're waving palm branches in the air. Looks like some kind of weird hillbilly Quaker Day parade, doesn't it? Like, what, what's happening? But this is the ancient Jewish equivalent of rolling out a red carpet. This was a coronation waving a palm branch. The palm branch was kind of a national symbol. That would be like waving a national flag. And then laying down your coats on the road was almost like a pledge of allegiance. It's saying, yes, I would even be willing to lay down my life for you, O king. Which is ironic, because remember, oh, how the tables would turn that within a week, Jesus will be the one laying down his life for them. Mark goes on, he says, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So Hosanna, you might be familiar with the word. It just means save us. That's all it means. They're saying save us, save us, save us. The people here are quoting scripture. Those verses we just read, those are quotes from the Old Testament. They're saying finally the deliverance has come. The fulfillment of the promises that God has made to David. We are ready for battle. We're going to follow you. You are the king. And this has actually played out before. Historically, the Jews had actually had other deliverers before Jesus. We read that shortly before the lifetime of Jesus, there was a Jewish family called the Maccabees. And if you're a real nerd, you can go home and you can read about the Maccabees this afternoon. And the Maccabees had liberated Jerusalem once before for, from their enemies. And so these Maccabee brothers, after they overthrow the enemies, they came riding into Jerusalem victorious. And do you know what the people did when the Maccabees came riding in? They waved palm branches. And they laid down their coats. And we have historical record of this. And once the Maccabees got into Jerusalem, the first thing they did, the first place they went was the temple. Because that's what you'd have to do. If you're doing a revolution, the first place you go is the Capitol building or the White House, right? And, and that's what the Maccabees do. They go to the temple because the temple was the crown jewel of Jerusalem. The temple was the heartbeat of Israel. And so everybody expects that Jesus, if Jesus is going to kickstart his revolution, he's going to go cleanse the temple too, just like the Maccabees did so many days ago. Because the king belongs at the temple like the president belongs at a White House. And so Jesus, he kind of fulfills their expectations. It says Jesus entered Jerusalem, and what did he do? He went into the temple courts. Then everybody's thinking, all right, here we go. It's the Maccabean revolt all over again. But look at what Jesus does when he gets to the temple. It says he looked around at everything. Ah, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Like that's the sound of all the air going out of the room. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? This is the most anticlimactic revolution ever. We're supposed to start overthrowing stuff, Jesus. And this would not be the last time he disappointed them. In fact, Jesus would go on to disappoint them more and more and more as the week went on. And so these very same people who cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, by the end of the week would be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. They were disappointed by the kind of king that Jesus was. Now remember, we've said all along that in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the first half that we spent the first half of this year on, the first half of the Gospel of Mark is all about how Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. And now here we are in the second half of the Gospel of Mark, and we've said that the second half of the Gospel of Mark, chapters 9 through 16, is all about how the Christ is headed for a cross. That he's a different kind of king than you expected. He is political, but it's a different kind of politics. 
And here's how we know, because interestingly, this is not the first triumphal entry that happened in Jerusalem on that very week. It was actually the second. There was another triumphal entry just shortly before this, Pontius Pilate. You're familiar with the name. He was the Roman ruler who was in charge of the area. He would have arrived in Jerusalem that week also for the Passover festivities because people are coming from all over the country to Jerusalem for the Passover that week. Pontius Pilate was there to keep an eye on things, make sure nothing got out of hand. And it was custom that when a Roman ruler came to town, the citizens of that town would give him a royal welcome, a triumphal entry. Pilate, though, actually would have entered from the northwest side of the city. Jesus would have entered down here, a very visible illustration of how Jesus' kingship and Pilate's rule were polar opposites. It wasn't just directionally that they were different. Pontius Pilate operated the way all earthly politics do. The story of earthly politics from time immemorial is the same, that people use power for self-promotion and self-protection, and yet Jesus is different. Every single time we see Jesus use power, he uses his publicity, he uses his followers, he leverages his power, he leverages his agenda for the good of the powerless. A radically different story. And this story here in Mark chapter 11 is no different. Look at how Jesus chooses to leverage his political pull here. He goes back and then spends the night, and it says the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, so they're getting ready to head back to Jerusalem, Jesus was hungry. He's a human. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So Jesus is hungry, right? It's time for breakfast. Jesus goes to this fig tree. He's looking for something to eat. When he gets to the fig tree, it's not in season. There's no figs on the tree, just leaves, no fruit. And so Jesus Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, white robe, blue sash, Jesus. Let the little children come to me, Jesus. Lamb on his shoulders on the flannel graph that you grew up with in Sunday school, Jesus. Curses a fig tree. What's going on here? Now, I've got a two-year-old in my house, and when he gets hungry, he gets angry. Now, we've seen this before. It's called getting hangry, right? And so in the mornings, if you don't get that two-year-old sat down at the breakfast table and get some food in front of him in time, he will curse us on a regular basis. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Let's be totally honest. Jesus, doesn't this seem a little bit petty, a little bit rude? You'll curse a tree just because you're hungry. But hang on for just a second, because there's a point to what Jesus is doing. Mark goes on, and he says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. So Jesus is back at the temple now. Now, uh, I actually got to go to Israel last year. It was an amazing privilege. And as you approach the city of Jerusalem from the direction that Jesus is coming, you can't see the city at all. You can watch it on your GPS. You know the city's right there, and you're getting closer and closer and closer. But you can't see the city at all until you come over and you crest the hill on the top of the Mount of Olives. And then as soon as you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, this view just sprawls out in front of you, and you can see the whole city. It's quite a stunning view there from the top of the Mount of Olives. And this picture is a little hard to discern, 
around, but you can go look it up, that you see this whole city laid out in front of you, and front and center to the whole thing, to this day, the thing that captures your vision is the Temple Mount. Now, the temple itself was destroyed not long after Jesus' death, but the Temple Mount remains, which was the foundation of where the temple was built. And it is massive. It is the largest ancient structure of any kind in the world. It's 20 acres in size. These bricks and blocks are unspeakably huge. And in Jesus' day, when the temple was there, the temple itself stood 18 stories tall. It took 100 priests just to open the doors to the temple because the doors were nine stories stories tall. It was this amazing structure. It was the heartbeat of the entire town. And the temple was the place that you would come to pray. This is where you would go to encounter the presence of God. This is where you would go to make sacrifices so that you could receive forgiveness for your sin. And yet in Jesus' day, the temple had become corrupt. It was a hotbed of political unrest that still is to this day. The week that I was in Jerusalem, there were riots and gunfire there at the temple. To this day, it's still a place where various movements and revolutionaries are conspiring for their causes. In Jesus' day, it was a place of economic injustice because well-intentioned families who would be coming to make a sacrifice for their sin would have to exchange some money to get the right currency or buy an animal to make sure it was pure enough for the sacrifice. And that in and of itself wasn't bad. It was just that the powers that be had rigged the whole system to make a profit. So it's a place of economic injustice. It was also a place of ethnic injustice, that the money changers and the animal sellers had set up shop in what was called the Court of the Gentiles, which was this outside range here. And that was the only place in the temple where a non-Jew could come pray. Because remember, God's heart has always been for the nations. He wants all people to come to know him and experience his goodness. But if they're setting up a market out here in the court of the Gentiles, foreigners can't come and encounter the goodness of God. And so the temple, Jesus says, has become like a fig tree. All leaves and no fruit. A lot of leaves, like a whole lot of activity. Sure looks good on the outside, all kinds of fancy and impressive and religious, and yet there's no fruit. There's no real devotion. There's no missional heartbeat to help people know and encounter the love of the true and living God. And so here's what Jesus does. Mark says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written? My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now don't tell me this event is not political. Remember, Jesus is political. He's got those four factors. This is a very public display with his followers. He's using his power, and he has a very specific agenda, and his agenda is to curse the temple. To curse the temple. Jesus says, hey, temple, you have failed in your mission to help people see and know God. Hey, temple, you've lost the plot, so temple, you're done. When Jesus looks at the temple, he doesn't just want to see leaves Oh, cool, you make sacrifices and you hold worship services and you have a nice building and you have a good attendance and a balanced budget. That's just leaves. Jesus wants fruit. Galatians chapter five, when Jesus looks at the heart of Plainfield Christian Church, you know what he wants to see? He wants to see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. When Jesus looks at this church, when Jesus looks at your life, does he see fruit? 
or does he just see leaves? And the temple has gotten to this point. It's gotten so far gone. It's all leaves and no fruit. And so in Mark chapter 13, two chapters later, Jesus tells his disciples that every one of those impressive stones that makes up the temple, every one of them will be thrown down. And he was right. I've seen them with my own two eyes. In the year AD 70, Rome came. They conquered Jerusalem. They sacked and burned and knocked down the temple. And the pile of stones are still to this day lying there on the ground. And so this political curse shook the Jewish leaders to their core. Mark tells us how they reacted. He says the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him. They killed Jesus because he was political, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. That fig tree was an illustration of what was going to happen to the temple. And this must have been hard for the people to understand. Jesus, you're going to curse the temple. You're going to tear down the temple. You're going to do away with this system. It took us 46 years to build that temple. We've been doing these sacrifices for hundreds of years. How could you do this? But here's how Jesus authenticates his curse of the temple. Mark says, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Withered from the roots. And Peter remembered this and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. That fig tree, Jesus saying, is an illustration of what is in store for the temple. It's an illustration of what happens when you're all leaves and no fruit. That fig tree, Jesus says, is an illustration of what will happen to every unjust system and every fruitless church and every corrupt structure that oppresses people when Jesus is king and when his people pray. Now I'm done teaching. Can I start preaching? Okay. Look what Jesus says right after this. He says, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is one of the most amazing promises in Scripture, isn't it? That just say to that mountain, hey, go jump in the sea. And if you believe it, it'll be done for you. Jesus says, whatever you ask for in faith, whatever you ask for in my name, it will be done for you. My question for you is, do you believe that? I mean, do you actually believe that? Because I think if I actually believed that, I'd spend a whole lot more time praying and a whole lot less time hustling. And I'd spend a whole lot more time praying and a whole lot less time worrying. And so, yes, this is an amazing promise. Now, of course, we have to always read Scripture in context. You guys know this. We have to take into account the larger context of Scripture and everything that Jesus teaches on prayer. This is not just a blank check. We don't get to boss God around. We don't get to turn God into some kind of a genie in a bottle who just exists to grant you your three wishes. Jesus teaches a lot of things on prayer. He teaches about how you got to just uh, pray in secret, and you got to pray according to the will of the Father, and you got to pray together, and you got to confess your sins in prayer, and you got to pray according to the will of God. We got to take this in 
to account of the larger context of prayer. So you got to remember those teachings, but we also got to look at the specific context here. What is happening when Jesus makes this promise? That if you say to that mountain, go jump in the sea, and you believe it, it'll be done for you. Now, Two things we notice. Number one, this is not just an individual thing. If you were to geek out and go look at the grammar today, you'd see that nine times in this promise, Jesus says the words you and your, and never once are they singular. Every single time they're plural. Jesus is saying, when y'all pray. This is a promise for all of God's people. When all of us together come and we pray in faith. When all of God's people pray together in one But here's the second thing. When Jesus says, if you say to that mountain, go jump in the sea and you believe it, it'll be done for you, what is Jesus referring to? He doesn't just say any old mountain. He doesn't just say, hey, if you want to see Kilimanjaro, go take a swim in the lake. No, he says this mountain. Where's Jesus when he's saying this? You can almost imagine him gesturing, can't you? He says, if you say to this mountain. He's talking about the temple mount. Jesus is saying, this is not just a promise about how prayer can rearrange the topography of a map. This is a promise that when God's people pray about unjust systems that oppress his people, God will do something about it. Let's think of an example. You guys probably remember the day just like I do. Last year, Friday morning, June 24th. Probably some of you had the news on. Maybe you got an alert on your phone like I did announcing that the United States Supreme Court had overturned and struck down Roe versus Wade. Let's ask the question, why did that happen? We could give various answers for why that happened, right? We could talk about, you know, certain presidents got elected and certain justices got appointed. But what if the real reason, what if the biggest reason was that for decades across generational and denominational and political lines, what if the main reason that ruling was struck down was that God's people prayed? And a ruling that seemed insurmountable and a mountain that seemed immovable moved. When Jesus says, ask for that mountain to be moved, and if you believe it, whatever you ask for in faith, it'll be done for you. He's not just saying, go pray that God would quadruple your salary this year. No, Jesus is saying that a faith-filled, mountain-moving prayer is a prayer against injustice. It's a prayer of saying, God, would you destroy the legalism in this church? God, would you destroy the legalism in my heart? It's God, would you end this war in Ukraine? And would you pour out your mercy on everybody who's suffering? It's God, would you tear down the discrimination and the poverty and the political fear-mongering that is tearing apart our country at the seams? It's God, there are 27 million slaves in forced labor around the world right now. God, there are over a million children who are being sex trafficked and having their innocence stolen. And it's not just out there. It's happening here in Hendricks County. I've met them. It's God, you see every infant who is starving and you see every baby whose life is snuffed out in the womb before she ever has a chance to open her eyes and see the light of day or take a breath and have your air fill her lungs. 
It's God, you see the evil that is happening in the name of religion and corrupt churches and crooked pastors who are taking advantage of people in your name. It's God, you see the racial prejudice that is infecting people's hearts. It's God, you see a whole swath of young people being destroyed by anxiety and isolation and depression. It's God, you see a whole era falling prey to sexual ideologies that rot people's souls from the inside out. It's God, you see the pornography industry putting a stronghold and choking out a generation of men. It's God, you see every woman who gets beaten and every child who's abused and every addict who's stuck in a cycle that wants to drag them to the grave. And it's God, would you do something? Would you move that mountain? And he says if we pray in faith that he'll do it. And I want that to be a promise that we live by. Because Jesus is political, right? He has followers. And he has power. He said in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. And he sure is public about this because he has an agenda. And you remember what Jesus says his agenda is in Mark chapter one, verse 15. We've based the whole series on this. Jesus says, the time has come. It's now. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is Jesus' agenda. He's bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. He wants to bring up there, down here. And so he says that in light of that, as his followers of his kingdom agenda, he says this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so back to our question from the beginning. If Jesus is political, how then should we be political? What if we prayed political prayers? And yes, of course, I'm talking about how Paul talks about how we should definitely pray for the governing authorities that have been established over us and whether or not we like them. When Paul gave that command to the early church, the emperor was Nero, okay? But I'm talking about what if we prayed political prayers with those four elements? What if we prayed publicly? And what if we prayed together? And what if we prayed with power? And what if we prayed with the agenda of Jesus Christ himself that the kingdom of heaven would come because this is the story of the church. We could tell story after story this morning about how the prayers of God's people have accomplished this. About how the prayers of God's people led to the founding of the world's first orphanages, of the world's first hospitals, and the world's first universities. About how the prayers of God's people put an end to the slave trade, and have put an end to genocide, and put an end to infanticide, and rehabilitated societies that were enslaved to addiction, and gave freedom and rights to all people who were made in the image of God, male and female, from the womb to the tomb. And so my question for you is, what's the next thing that needs to happen? What's the next mountain that you want to see moved? What's the next thing that you'd love to look down at your phone screen and see an alert about? You'd love to flip on the news. What's the next thing God wants to do? And I don't know what the Lord's going to lay on your heart today, but when he does, would you just get some people together and start praying? Because Jesus made a promise. And it's happened before. Remember, who is Mark writing to? He's writing to Christians in the first century in Rome. In Rome. Now, by the end of the first century, just a few years after Mark writes these words, in the year A.D. 100, there were about 25,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. It had grown a little bit. 
But it was still really tough slugging for those 25,000 Christians. They were in a legal religion. They were persecuted. They were beaten. They were socially ostracized. They had their lives stolen. They didn't have church buildings. They didn't have Bibles in their hands. They didn't have worship bands or youth groups or 501c3 tax breaks. They actually made it hard to join the church, too. They weren't seeker-sensitive. The early church for the first 300 years said, okay, cool, you want to get baptized? Come attend three years of classes first so you can learn your stuff, and then we'll find out whether or not you're legit. Then we'll take you. And yet, despite all of that, by the year 310 A.D., there were 20 million Christians, and they were the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. How in the world did that happen? How did that happen? What in the world? I got to go to Rome last year too, and when we were in Rome, we walked by the Arch of Titus. This is the Arch of Titus, and it was built to commemorate that event that Jesus foretold today, where Rome came in in the year AD 70, and they sacked Jerusalem. They conquered Jerusalem, they burned the temple, they took tons of Jewish people as slaves, and they brought them back to Rome, and then the Romans built this arch in Rome to commemorate that event. And the Romans, took, the Romans they, they took those captives from Israel, and on the backs of 75,000 Jewish slaves, the Romans built this, which is the Colosseum. You've seen it before. This was a structure of injustice and oppression where they used gladiatorial murder for the entertainment of the crowds. And yet today, what is thriving and headquartered in Rome? The Catholic Church, right? And what lies in ruins? The Colosseum, the, the pride and joy, the symbol of Rome, the so-called eternal city, the greatest empire that the world had ever seen, now lies in ruin, ruins as a testament to the power of the gospel and the prayers of the people of God. And we got to go inside the Colosseum. You want to know something crazy? When you go inside the Colosseum, this area right here is where the emperor himself would sit. And right on the ground, right there in front of where the emperor himself would sit, there's a cross there's a cross in the Colosseum. The cross that was the symbol of imperial strength. The cross was this symbol saying that any revolution that dared to rear its head against the might of imperial Rome would only end in death. And yet now there's a cross even in the Colosseum right in front of where the emperor would sit, testifying now and forever to the power of a crucified king who will one day put an end to every injustice and he will right every wrong. There's a cross in the Colosseum. When we pray, God moves mountains. One more story, one more story. Uh, Roy Weiss, I've told this story before. Roy Weiss was the campus minister, longtime campus minister at the University of Missouri. Shout out to my tigers, the kings of mediocrity, right? Um, Roy Weiss was the longtime campus minister there, and during his ministry, he baptized over 9,000 people, just a giant of the faith, one of my spiritual heroes. And back in the 1980s, uh, Roy would often make these trips to Eastern Europe, and he would smuggle Bibles in under the Iron Curtain into the Soviet bloc, and he'd spend time there encouraging these underground pastors who were ministering in these difficult communist contexts. Many of these pastors had had their teeth knocked out or their fingers cut off just for preaching Jesus. And while all this persecution under the communist regime was at its peak, these Christians there in the Soviet Union, they decided that they were going to start to pray for God to bring an end to communism in their country, to communism in the USSR. And they just decided to pray. And they decided to pray a really bold, really specific prayer. They asked God to give them a sign that he had heard their prayers, a sign that he was going to answer their prayers on a specific date. And they just picked a random date. 
They picked November 9th, 1989. And so for over a year, the Christians prayed. They prayed, God, would you bring an end to this? God, would you end this injustice? God, would you strengthen and protect your church? God, would you give us a sign on November 9th, 1989? And Roy Weiss went home and he wrote that date in his journal months and months ahead of time and they prayed and they had no idea what would happen on that day. They just trusted that God would hear and answer their prayers, that he would be at work. And they prayed. And on November 9th, 1989, Roy Weiss turned on his television and do you know what he saw? He saw the Berlin Wall come crashing down. I'm telling you that the end of that communist regime was not just random or happenstance. It wasn't just the product of political maneuvering or Reagan's famous call for Gorbachev to tear down the wall. It was because God's people prayed and a mountain moved. So what's the next mountain you want to see moved? What are you going to pray for? That's my challenge. Here's my invitation. If there's any of you in the room today who are not yet right with King Jesus, then the Bible's actually pretty clear that this moment of communion is not for you. It's actually pretty dangerous for you to take, so don't take it if you're not right with him. But there is a prayer you can pray. And if you need to surrender to your king today, the prayer is those words that the people cried when Jesus came riding in on a donkey and they cried out, Hosanna. Hosanna, God save us. Save us. When you do, he will. And we'd love to walk with you to Jesus. Our prayer team's gonna be gathered around the edges of the room like they always are with their green lanyards on. And if you need to surrender to your king today, come. Let's do that. Because the beautiful thing is that you and I, we don't have to go to a temple today, do we? To encounter the presence of God, to make a sacrifice and receive forgiveness of sin. We've all messed up this week. You've got some things probably in the back of your mind that you wish you could go back and change. I'm not going to make you come slaughter a goat this morning. You're welcome. Jesus says that the reason he could tear down the temple, he said he'd rebuild it again in three days. He's talking about, he's talking about himself. He says, I'm now your temple. If you want to encounter the presence of God, come to me, Jesus says. If you want to pray, come to me. Pray in my name, Jesus says. If you want to receive forgiveness of sins, oh, come to me. I'm your priest and I'm your sacrifice. And this is the moment that we get to celebrate again together today how God himself answered our deepest cry and he moved away the mountain of our sin so that we could know him. So I'm gonna give you a few moments on your own to receive this bread that represents the body of our Savior. And would you just let your soul whisper to him again, Hosanna. Jesus, you are the king. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.